The following show is being broadcasted from an undisclosed location. Two former special operators have combined their badassery and now sharing it with the world. They ain't alive no more. All with a beer and a smile. This is the Savage Actual Podcast. And now your hosts combat vets with 20 plus deployments between the two of them and enough testosterone to operate the power grid of Los Angeles. Savage Actual. Now your hosts, Jason and Patrick. What's up everybody? I'm Jason Lily, one of the two good looking masculine amazing human beings here uh, i'm actually gonna scratch that completely we're going down we're going out of treacherous we're going down a treacherous route there like you guys are. Savage. i may still use that i may still use that <laughs> what's up everybody i'm jason with savage actual one of two co-hosts by the co-host right here mr patrick moltra hello everyone hello everyone hey i'm glad to have you guys here for this episode this is a really great episode i know not just for me or and jason as well but Mr. Ryan Fugit is here from the podcast Combat Story. Jason and I have had uh, the ability to talk to Ryan on a couple of occasions, and he's just a great guy and has a super interesting career, and we're, we're very happy to have him here with us today. I'm, I'm so grateful to be here, guys. Um, you know, and I, as I had said a previous time, I feel like I should be an honorary co-host because we've spent so many hours together on another show, <laughs> um, but... You guys have helped me out behind the scenes in the past, um, just out of the goodness of your heart. Uh, genuinely was excited to to do this interview today. As much as I hate being the one on this side, I was looking forward to just chatting with you two. Oh, man. Yeah, no, trust me, man. We're honored to have you. This is, uh, we've been looking forward to it. And that's actually kind of surprising you hate being on this side, man. You hate being in the hot seat, huh? No, man. I was trained to be on the other side, asking other people questions, <laughs> not receiving them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, yeah. I saw that you would actually just, just weren't you just, uh, you had somebody flip the switch on you on your own podcast not that long ago, right? Just this past week? Yeah, I just, um, we released one on a guy, Ryan Rogers, um, uh, who was in Battle of Marja. He's got his own podcast and he interviewed me a month or so ago and we just released it on our uh, site to help him get a little more traction. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I saw that. I gotta watch that. So I haven't seen that. You don't have to do that. Yeah. So we met Mr. Ryan the other day, and we, as we, yeah, you guys are, you know, kind of putting two and two together. We we've individually been on Ryan's uh, podcast, and uh, we we definitely found out a lot more about him and what he was up to and the things he's done. And we we know some of the same people in the circles that we do, and we're like, yo, we need to get this guy on. So. Uh, I've been looking forward to it. You've got a really unique story, uh, what you've told me about your family. So I can't wait to share what you've shared with me offline to the public. And uh, you really do have an amazing <laughs> story, man. So I can't wait to share all your family information with the public. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Last <laughs> four and all that stuff, man. So. Jason, man, we got to start with your picture, man. Can we not? Can we start with that or are you teeing that up? Yes. Later? No, I mean, we, we, I think I, that's a that's a good way to start. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it for a second, but we'll lead up to, to that as well. So, all right, all right. Mr. Mr. Ryan here, a.k.a. The Sir, was a <laughs> Army officer, and he flew AH-64 attack helicopters like the one back left of him. And 
when he told me that actually mid conversation of the podcast, uh, it hit me that I actually made one of those in <laughs> Village Elementary in Emporia, Kansas in 1991. We had this little clay six by nine piece of clay that we could with a freaking, you know, a knife and like uh, toothpicks make whatever we wanted on there. And they were going to throw it in the kiln. We could paint it, whatever we we're going to throw it in the kiln. They were going to hang it on the wall like everyone from fifth grade that year. And to this day, it's still hanging. All those things are still hanging there today, 33, 34 years later, which is crazy. So I made an attack helicopter. I made the AH-64, I guess, alpha model uh, while everyone else is making unicorns and teddy bears and freaking what other fifth graders do. I made an attack helicopter. So I told Ryan, I'm like, yo, man, I'm going to call this school and just see if one, if the school is still alive, two, is it there? Do they have it in a box? And it's actually still hanging up right now. And this sweet lady I talked to on the phone found it and took a picture and sent it to me. And I, I blasted it to Ryan. I was like, yo, man, what do you think? <laughs> it, and it is to scale. I mean, it's got the Hellfires in the right place. It's got the rocket pods. It's got the antenna. And it's even got the uh, the optics and the FLIR on the front to to scale, I would say. And I'm impressed because you probably didn't have a picture of it when you were drawing it. <laughs> I did not. No, it was so, all from my obsessive nerd mind. What I'll do is when we, uh, um, eventually we'll get to releasing all these on YouTube. And when I do it, will as we're talking about it, it'll pop up. I've got the picture and it's hilarious. So everybody that's listening, if you want to go to YouTube at some point and watch this episode and you'll see it on there and you get to see Jason's uh, artistic side. Yeah. Yeah. Almost made a joke out of that, but we won't. Um, so let's, let's back it up, man. So everyone knows already you were in the army. Well, let's, let's back it up. Where, where'd you grow up, man? I grew up, um, everywhere, but the U S. Um, so my, my dad was a career state department guy, not CIA, uh, just straight up political state officer. So he did a lot of his time in South America and Africa. Uh, oh, and very Middle cool. East later on in his career. So I was born in uh, in Brussels and spent just three years there. Then I spent several years in Southern Africa, in Zimbabwe, and then several years in Pakistan um, during the Gulf War. So we lived all over. It was the tail end of my dad's career, so he was pretty high up at the time. Um, so we were just around, you know, I, I never knew really what America was beyond what I had seen in cartoons or heard occasionally. And then we take a, a two week trip back over the summer. And this, this was my vision of America. So I grew up everywhere. That's, that's gotta that's be super strange to be with somebody that's representing, you know, your dad represents America on the political side of things and you're traveling around all these places and you've never really been there. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. So this just popped into my head just because of all the stuff that we do. What, what languages did you pick up while you were, while you were there? Yeah. So uh, interesting question on that one. Uh, I'm told when I was three that, uh, when my mom picked me up from our, uh, elementary school in Brussels, I would speak Flemish and whatever name they had for me is, uh, Translated to spinning top because I was just running all over the place and I insisted <laughs> apparently on kissing every girl before I left the school um, <laughs> when I was picked up. 
So, so we picked that one up. That was like my start. And then when we were in Africa, they speak a lot of dialects. In Zimbabwe, the main language that you would pick up is called Shona. So I certainly didn't pick that up. I wasn't in a school where we spoke that, but we had okay. we had staff because my dad was pretty high up. So we had gardeners and cooks and that sort of thing and drivers. And they were from different tribes, but they spoke Shona. So they would teach me a few words here and there. And one of one of our gardeners, in fact, um, would would basically whittle out a bow and arrow so I could go shoot one of the other staff members with it because he was from a rival tribe. Um, so it was just like a total normal upbringing when you're eight years old, basically. That is that's rad, pretty man. crazy. That's super interesting. Wow. Yeah, I, I I didn't hear that story, man. I know you brought up another one that I asked a few questions about and. And that's after Zimbabwe being in your teenage years, I believe, in Pakistan, correct? Yeah, yeah. So being, you know, white boy gringo in, in Pakistan <laughs> in the 90s, uh, how how was that, man? It was pretty crazy. I mean, I know you guys have spent a lot of time in um, Muslim countries. That was the first <laughs> time that I had, and, you know, I'm 10, <laughs> 11 years old like call to prayer you hear it in the morning all the holidays people were walking down the streets huge mosques uh, that was a first for me and the school that i went to like a lot of these international schools as you guys know are where the elite send their kids so politicians expats yep. diplomats um that sort of thing so i was friends with kids from all over but a lot you know probably half the school or more are Pakistani kids. And so I was pretty close with them. I played sports. I think that's a, a common theme for a lot of us as you move around a lot. Like that that gets you in with different groups pretty quickly. So I was always playing sports. So we'd go out at lunch and whatever, and we'd play football or soccer or whatever it was. And then the Gulf War happened. And so we were evacuated out. My dad and a small contingent stayed because he was the chief political officer there. But my mom, my brother, and I got evacuated out. We spent six months in Chicago, um, actually down the street from the Home Alone house from that movie, which was pretty fun. <laughs> so fly oh, away. Wow. We come back six months later, back to Pakistan. And it's like a different place where whatever happened, the tensions with within the Muslim world um, really kind of seeped into that culture, at least at the school I was at. And they did not like Americans there. Wow. So, yeah, we had a, a kind of a contentious experience where I was at a school dance when I was about 12 or 13. And, you know, it's like boys to men back then. They're playing it. You're slow dancing, uh, trying yeah. to work magic. And I, I don't know if there were parents there or not, but a lot of the kids had bodyguards. And I was dancing with this girl who I knew, this American girl, but she was Egyptian descent. And this this kid had his bodyguards pull me out back. They put a gun to my head and they're like, Hey, if you, if we see you dancing or talking to a Muslim girl again, we're going to kill you. And you know, like at, at that age, it was a rude awakening. You know, I was definitely scared, kind of went home, talked to my folks about it. We stayed in the country. And then not long after that, like, and, and things were contentious after that. And then at one point I was down the street at a friend of mine who is uh, a Saudi kid 
And we got a call like to his house line. They're like, Hey, these guys are coming for Ryan. You got to tell them to get out of there. So like ran out of that house, ran down the streets in Islamabad back to my place. And eventually they kind of had us uh, leave the country a little sooner than anticipated, but it was, it was like a different environment um, after that war. Wow. wow. Um, it, it's amazing that that had such a huge effect on Pakistan. Obviously, yeah, it's a, it's a Muslim country, but it, you know, they weren't really no. closely tied into what was happening then. I could understand something like that now if we're talking Afghanistan timeframe because of all the bleed over from people going between Pakistan and Afghanistan. But that's, that's crazy that just because of the shared religion, they developed such animosity. The, the, the embassy compound, have either of you guys been there to Islamabad to the compound? No, I've been to Pakistan. I've never been to Islamabad. Never that, Islamabad. Yeah. The compound is massive and it has been overrun before. So like in the, I'm going to get the date wrong. It was in the seventies. Like they came over the walls. So there's a concern that whatever is happening in, in that region could spill over and which is why they evac us out. Um, but yeah, nothing, nothing actually happened. And I don't know how broad that was, but at least at the school I was at, it was palpable. Yeah. Wow. For a young guy like yourself, I mean, such a impressionable mind that's, that's, that, that yeah. stays with you for a long time and shapes, shapes, shapes your viewpoint. So your dad, let's back it up just a smidge for our listeners out there. Your dad was, was a military guy and was a pilot as well. Correct. That is correct. Yeah. So he was a uh, Huey pilot in Vietnam. So he flew slicks is what they'd call him. Like, no, <laughs> they'd have a door gunner, but you know, really they were just moving people from A to B into different LZs. Uh, so he did, he did a year in Vietnam as a commission guy as well. Um, and I, I do remember growing up hearing his stories. And when I, when I at least went and saw we were soldiers, I felt like I was reliving a story that I heard from him. So he has a, a distinguished flying cross, which the aviation community is not easy to come across in the army, at least. Wow. Um, and a silver star from like flying, flying guys in and out of a hot LZ on one particular mission. And I just remember telling him all the time, like, Hey dad, tell me that story again. Like when I was little, <laughs> like we'd be driving in a car. I was like, tell me that one again. Tell me that again. He was never, ever bragging about it. He's very, uh, and Jason, you've met him. So like, he's just pretty matter of fact and, uh, uh, super realist. And he would just tell it like it was. And then I later got to meet a lot of the guys that he had flown with. They still meet every year for a reunion. These old guys um, probably only started about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe. And they get together every year and they'll tell me like, hey, he wasn't a great pilot, but that guy had <laughs> balls. <laughs> and he did, man. I mean, and, and we, we joke that he wasn't the greatest guy on the controls. Um, <laughs> but I, I will say he was, he was involved in the largest midair collision not, not something you want to be involved in, but he was part of one of the largest midair, uh, the largest army midair collision, at, at least at the time in Vietnam, possibly since then. Um, 10, 10 aircraft doing a training op in Vietnam with some of their local, local national forces on board. Um, up in the clouds, he was, I think, the third aircraft in, and the, the lead aircraft ran into a, a command and control ship in the clouds, fireball, Second aircraft ran into the fireball, disintegrated three aircraft, and Holy he hell. faded. 
I think the fourth aircraft may have been hit too. Um, so he, he was quick enough on the controls to get out of that, but he has several stories of times where his co-pilot saved his ass, which is just the case when you're flying. Like sometimes you, you got the luck and sometimes you don't. Jesus. Holy cow, man. Yeah. We got to talk to your dad. Jeez. Get on our show too. I, and if I can just say like, I went to Vietnam with him and my brothers in 2017 to kind of re, you know, kind of retrace some of the steps that places that he had been and you can't get every you can't get to all these places the base that he was at is a vietnamese military base now but we did get oh, to wow. the field where we think that this mid-air collision happened and i probably only see my old man cry like three times and this he was at least tearing up at this you know just being in this place where a lot of the guys that he knew and you know how it is when you're downrange how close you get to these guys where they were just all gone in a second wow man I was actually in Vietnam, right, right about the same time you were, man. Were you? Same year, yeah. I traveled all over that place, uh, Cambodia and Laos and Vietnam. Life-changing moment, man. So, you, obviously, you had, you know, having your 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 uh, father being a, a veteran, a combat veteran, a pilot um, left. But what did it did? At a young age, I guess to be more direct, did you did you think did you know you were going to go into the military at a young age, or when did that hit you? I, I probably would say that I always knew that I would. Um, I I joke with my brothers because when we talk about this, it was just an expectation. Like you were going into the military, odds were you were going to do ROTC, so that you know our parents were government; they had no money, so they weren't going to pay for that. Uh, so ROTC was the way to do it. And it was kind of an expectation. So I've got older brothers who have been in. One was a Kiowa pilot. One was, uh, you know, a tank uh, armor guy. And I we see just that, grew up. The black sheep? Uh, no, like we got one who didn't go in at all. <laughs> so like if anybody was going to be the black sheep, it would be him. But there was no uh, no negative consequences for him not going in by any means. But I, I don't know. I mean, I grew up the same way a lot of these guys that I've talked to did. Like you were just out in the woods playing army, GI Joes all day long. Um, I, I remember like when when the Gulf War happened, they had those little playing cards for different aircraft and units and stuff. And like I couldn't wait to get my hands on that. So <laughs> yeah, from a young age, that was where I was going. Now, because I grew up around the State Department, there was an element of that that I also wanted to be a part of. This like embassy, overseas life, traveling around the world. And my dad was close to people in the CIA because he was, you know, like you're just in the same environments throughout your careers. So I got to hear from these people as I was as I was growing up. So there was a little bit of me that, that also wanted to see that. But first and foremost, there was this expectation, you're doing ROTC, get that to pay for college and then go into the military. This podcast episode is sponsored by Iron Fire Brewing. Iron Fire Brewing is a Southern California favorite, creating craft beers from the finest ingredients. Iron Fire Brewing creates unique beers with classic tiki drink-inspired flavors, amazing lagers, and more. Iron Fire Brewing can be shipped directly to your home by going to craftshack.com and search for Iron Fire Brewing. So what year did you, uh, did you enter ROTC? 98 was my freshman year in college. Yeah. So pre 9-11, um, I still remember people laughing at me in my uniform on campus in DC. You know, it just wasn't, 
it wasn't cool at the time to be in the military. Um, certainly not on a college campus, as I recall. Yeah, and there was nothing. Yeah. I mean, nine like ninety eight. There wasn't really. That's funny because I was in ninety seven, ninety eight. I was in Bosnia, but I mean, there's nothing else really significant going on. You know, it's not like the. It's not like it was in the last twenty years, but yep. yeah, distant. Yeah, distant. What school did you go to? So I was at Georgetown in D.C., which was important really just because on 9-11, when the planes hit the Pentagon, I was there. You know, like I, I went and saw the smoke for myself coming off those buildings. And it was it was just yep. interesting to be in D.C. for a few years, but in particular after 9-11. So you're at Georgetown. <laughs> you're there when 9-11 happens. Yeah. Um, so I, I played football trip. at Georgetown, so I kind of had this pretty close nucleus of guys. But of the 90 guys on the team, I was the only one in ROTC. Um, but after 9-11, several of those guys went into the military direct. Oh, wow. Like either OCS or like one of the guys that I played with is still in the SF realm. Uh, and he just went in straight enlisted right after 9-11. So, wow. It's not to say that these guys weren't patriots, but pre-9-11, it was just a different world. And yep. once 9-11 happened, it changed, obviously, everybody's perspective. But yeah, like we would, you know, because it was football, we'd get up and go and, and lift and watch game film and that sort of thing early in the morning. So I do remember like that day coming back to our house. You know, I was a senior then, so we were living off campus, four guys on the team. And I just remember him sitting on the couch and I was coming in and, and catching what happened on TV and trying to call my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And, you know, you couldn't make any calls out, at least in the D.C. area, because it was all locked down after the Pentagon hit. And we all had these really uh, lame little uh, mopeds. That was the way we got around <laughs> town. So I hopped on that thing, man, and drove down so I could get eyes on the Pentagon. Um, I still just remember that that experience. And I would just read the uh, the Washington Post like cover to cover every day after that to just get any pulse on what was going on. And one of the things that I just I, I still remember was uh, when you, the the name Mike Span, you know, like the first guy, first yep. KIA in that war. Um, when he was killed, they did his ceremony um, at Arlington, and they just put something in the paper that said you come come and see it. So I went down, you know, I didn't know anybody else. Nobody would go with me, which I thought was weird. Like I asked a bunch of guys in ROTC, like, Hey, we should go to this. And nobody did. Um, and I just remember it was a cold ass day in December. I think it was in December or January of, uh, you know, one or Oh two. And all these people in, you know, a former Marine. So a lot of Marines there. Um, and agency guy. So a lot of people in, in suits who had just come down from the agency, you know, no insignia or insignia or anything, but that was the first real like, uh, memorable loss that I could, you know, I didn't know him personally, but just, it, it was far more real for me at that point, watching this, especially at Arlington, you guys know what it's like being there and to see yeah. a, a service like this with the first KIA and that, in that war was pretty, pretty tough to see, but, but super, impactful i would say and powerful for me yeah absolutely man. yeah for so, sure your mindset obviously this is this is game time this is real now and not that it wasn't but it's definitely put a different spin on it when 
when do you commission? When do you actually get into the big, uh, big machine? Yeah. So <laughs> we were the, uh, maybe not technically the first class to commission after nine 11, cause they'll commission people in the, in the winter timeframe, like people who do an extra half a semester or something, but the, the full commissioning class in May of Oh two. And what was interesting is the guy who commissioned us was general George Casey, who was a, another former Georgetown, um, alum also played football there. His dad was the commander of first Cav in Vietnam and was the most senior ranking guy killed at the time in Vietnam. He died in a helicopter crash Wow! Um, while Casey was at Georgetown. But anyway, so like I, I interviewed Casey a couple months back, uh, I had him on the show and he, he was the one who kind of sent us off the first kind of class going into this post nine 11 era, which felt pretty special at the time. I thought it was pretty cool to have him there. So yeah, O2 was our commissioning. And because I was going to aviation, I knew I had this super long pipeline and I was dreading the fact that I was going to miss this war. Like that was f- totally at the front of my mind that I was going to miss everything. Cause I was going to be in, in the schoolhouse for so long. <laughs> Little did, Little you, did know, you know, yeah. it would last two and a half decades later. <laughs> little, little did anyone know. Holy hell. So, Let's talk about your, your mind in, in, in the sense of like dreams. Like you said you wanted to go into aviation. Was there a platform? Was there a helo? Was there a fixed wing? Like what, what platform were you hoping to get? So it, it's funny. One of the guys that was in my class that I, I also interviewed recently, a guy named Mike Rutledge. So he was a SEAL and then went into 160th. But so he was in my flight school class. And I remember as we're all just like a bunch of lieutenants, this guy walks in and he's got a trident on his chest. I'm like, holy shit, that's badass. <laughs> um, and this is like who we're going. And he was on the warrant side. So uh, slightly different, but we, we kind of went through the pipeline together. One of the things he said though, and he flew um, MH-47s for years in 160th. And what he said was his son, when his son went into aviation not too long ago, he goes, all I wanted was for him to not be an Apache pilot. That's all I wanted. And I was like, well, why is that? He goes, because you Apache pilots are all the same. Everybody wants to be an Apache pilot and you guys got the attitude to show. And he's like, but I know I also wanted to be an Apache pilot. So anyway, like when I was in, um, I wanted all the options that I, I could have. And, and like a lot of, of schools in the military, you know, it's kind of like your order of merit, whoever's number one gets whatever the army has at that time. So I just wanted to be in a position where I could have a choice on what aircraft I flew. And I really wanted to fly guns. And, um, I was, I was torn into going into aviation. Like I weighed very heavily up until like the night before I had to choose what branch I wanted between that and infantry. I could have easily seen either side for me, but just with my dad having flown and how close that was to home and and having a brother who flew Kiowas, I was like, I'm going to go this route aviation. But once I was in aviation, I just really wanted to fly guns and probably couldn't do this today. I don't know like how the army is, but when we got assigned our aircraft, uh, three of the guys that I was really close with, two of them got um, Blackhawks. And so I gave them skirts as as like a gift of like, <laughs> we're flying the real thing. You and the ladies can go fly Blackhawks. But obviously, ladies fly everything. I had a woman in my, uh, in my company 
it, my Apache company was a badass. Um, but you know, like it, there's always a rivalry and ribbing that goes on in any branch and even within yeah. the same branch, like there's a lot of trash talking. So 100%. I just wanted to fly guns yeah. as, as I started out. So, and were you pretty focused on that Apache or were you entertaining other gunships at all? I mean, they don't really, they have Kiowas, which have guns on them, but that's like primarily a scout vehicle. They were taking people into 160th right out of flight school at that time, which wow. is rare. And so that guy, wow. Mike Rutledge, did that. I did get the chance to do it, but you'd have to fly 47s. And I just really, like, if they had said, hey, come and fly AH-6s, I would have been like, of course, I will come over there yeah, and do that. That would have been a blast, yeah. But, uh, but they don't. So, like, for me, the, the real only gun option was an Apache. And they had, they had a fixed-wing aircraft in the class, and somebody pretty high up in the in the oml took it which was surprising to me like of all the things if you're going army aviation why not fly helicopters but yeah they, they have a mix but guns really is just an apache is the only option there yeah so i mean this is obviously we're kind of in the dark about this realm um walk us through you know like when how was how was that school i mean do you call it an a school i'm not sure how at what yeah what is it there because you have different trainer aircraft and stuff like what's the, the exactly like jason said 100 percent. i'm in the dark in this one i don't even know begin to guess what the process is for this yeah mm -hmm. so people who have heard me interviewed before will hear this but you know hopefully a lot of people on, on your side maybe have not heard this so i hope i'm not boring them but it's a long <laughs> pipeline it's it's at least a year if not 18 months depending on what airframe you get but everybody starts out in basic flight with uh, typically you're flying or at the time you're flying the civilian version of the Kiowa. Um, so kind of like a news aircraft that you might see flying around <laughs> above you in the city reporting on traffic. So you learn to fly on that and then you progress to a real Kiowa and you start doing kind of like low level, um, we call them confined area operations, like landing to an area that's pretty narrow, um, masking and unmasking. So like popping up above the horizon to act like you're doing something and then dropping down flying nap of the earth, which is just a couple feet off the yep. treetops, as I'm sure you guys have flown many times yeah. inside of an aircraft or on the side of an aircraft and learning how to do that. Um, and then once that's all over, then you kind of select your advanced aircraft. And so like once you get Apaches, you go to, uh, for me, it was the alpha model training course. So the, the one that you drew Jason, that's the first one I went to. And I went through that whole course and literally just like you see in the military all the time, right at the end, they're like, Hey, actually the unit you're going to has this other version that they call the Delta model, the longbow. So you got to go back and now you got to do the longbow trainer. So I went back and did that again. I'm just like, Oh my God, I'm going to miss this war. Like units are deploying Afghanistan, Iraq, watching all of this from Alabama. Um, so overall it takes you know, it took me about 16 months, I would say. And there, I, I will say within that training process, the two really significant moments are learning to hover, which is crazy and just um, fear, fearful experience for anybody who's doing it. So it takes like six to eight hours for anybody. Once you touch the controls, like you need six to eight hours on the controls before you can hover. Um, wow. so you got this, this instructor pilot that is on the ground with you, 
you pick up, he's on the controls and then he's like, all right, everything's stable. You're like 10 feet off the ground, five feet off the ground. And he's like, all right, Ryan, you got the controls. And so then you take over and then you're like, all right, I got this. And, and then everything's stable. And then moments later, you're like 30 meters off of where you started. You might be about 60 feet in the air. And he's like, all right, let me take the controls. And he sets it down. <laughs> you do that again. And you do it for like an hour and a half. And then your mind is smoked from, from trying to just, it, it just takes a lot of mental uh, capacity to keep this thing in the air. And you do that until you've hit about six to eight or nine hours in the aircraft. And it's a, an ego destroying exercise for everyone. Were you squeezing the shit out of the collective? Every, the, yeah. Death grip? The collective. And, and every time they're like, just go easy on it. It's just small movements. You're like, that's what I'm doing. And you're flying all over the place, man. It's, it's wow. insane. How was that? How was that moment? It clicked for you, man. Like when did. Once it clicks, you- it's just like riding a bike, like that analogy. And you can pick it up and do it again years later. Like you just, it's an instinct that you learn. It, you're, you're, you're moving three different controls at the same time, the cyclic, the collective, and then the pedals. And once you learn like these small inputs where one impacts the other two, and once you can kind of counter all three at the same time, you've got it. So it is a pretty cool moment. Once you learn that you feel like you're invincible and then they move on to something else that just crushes your soul again. (laughs) And then in the Apache, the next thing that you do, that's, uh, the one thing that's pretty unique to that is this thing they call it the bag. So you have to learn to fly with just this glass monocle in one eye. So all of the instruments and information is presented to you in this little, it's a monocle that sits right in front of your right eye. And it's disorienting because you're looking, you're looking out um, at something just like an inch from one eye with one of your eyes. And then the other eye is looking out into the distance. So you have to train your mind to only focus out of one eye. And, and it's easy when you're flying in the daytime because you look through this glass piece and you can see like your airspeed, your altitude, the direction of travel. It's, it's really helpful for that. It's right in your face. At night, it gets tough though because it's all thermal imaging. So not even MVGs, just thermal. And it's all presented in this super small um, optic in front of your eye. So you no longer have binocular vision. Like you can't, you have no depth perception anymore. So when you want to land or do something, you have to, you have to look really closely at these other cues in this really small reticle, like as, as things are moving past you to gauge how fast you're going, how high you are, you've still got the airspeed and, and altitude, but trying to identify obstacles. And when you come in to land is really, really challenging. So to train you on this, they put a bag over the <laughs> so you can't see out. So the the pilot in the back can see out the the instructor pilot, and you can't see anything. So you're kind of like in this bubble, and most people throw up, and it takes God, I can't remember how many hours it takes. Probably like ten or twelve till you're really feeling comfortable in this thing, but it's really disorienting until you get there, trying to learn to fly with one eye. So what's, what's the attrition rate for this, for this course? Like, uh, like what did you guys class up to start specifically for like, let's say the, the, the Apache, do you guys have 10, 15 people, whatever. And then 
you end up with how many at the end? So it's a super low attrition rate. I think oh, part really? of it is, yeah. This is a type of performers. Yeah, my dad will say this as a joke about like, hey, he's a bad pilot. Like, They just need warm bodies and anybody can fly once you have enough time on the sticks. It's very rare. Like we had one person in the class who just did not take to flying and had to leave. But oh. for the most part, anybody can be trained to do it. Um, they, they might leave, they might self-select out for other reasons, but it's not because gotcha. they're getting weeded out for skill. Gotcha. I, I think part of that is the testing and weeding out that they do on the front end. That I think they've got it down to a pretty good science and there's, there's nothing skill-wise that's really going to push somebody out necessarily. It was a trip years ago. I was at uh, Hohenfeld's Germany and one of the OCs there was talking to me. We, we were actually taking the, um, the Georgians there for training. And uh, I was talking to one of the observer controllers that's on Hohenfeld's. He's like, oh yeah, there's a, there's a warrant officer here who's 20 years old. I was like, what? And he's like, oh yeah, there's a program called high school to flight school. And he's like, yeah, he's a Black Hawk pilot. It's his first duty station. He's never flown anywhere, but he's been here for, he goes, he's been here for eight months or something. And I was like, 20 year old Black yeah. Hawk pilot. Are you kidding me? And he started telling me kind of, uh, that was a trip. So yeah. uh, that blew me away. You got 20 year olds firing hellfires downrange at times. It's crazy. That's, that, that's, a, that's impressive. Yeah, yeah, that's a trip. Yeah. So how long was this course again to, to actually, so you did, did you say 18, you said a, 16, yeah. 18 months, About 16 months for, for what it took for me to get through this thing. Yeah. Th through that whole pipeline. And then you, you go to your unit and you're like, Oh, by the way, we're, we're flying Delta variants. You need to go back and train on this Delta <laughs> variant. And how long yeah. was that, that, uh, training period on that? That's pretty short. That was probably, Probably a month, I would say. Okay. I mean, everything's pretty similar. They've just upgraded a whole lot of things. So it's just, it, it was almost going from like analog to digital, quite honestly. And it, and it was easier to fly. So that wasn't tough. Um, the unit that I went to, though, this was kind of interesting. They, when I got there in 04, they had just come back from the very, from OIF1, basically. So it was supposed to be this coming out party for the Apaches, like doing some serious damage over there. And they applied base, you know, I don't, I don't want to do a disservice here, but it was like morale was seriously low mm. where <laughs> they were supposed to, to go and, and kind of like lead out in front, um, take out different sites and enemy positions. And they kind of used cold war tactics that we had been training on. And so they went out as like a battalion level, if you can imagine 20 to 24 Apaches flying out at once um, in an environment we hadn't been in really, like we didn't really train in to fly in the sand. So a couple of them um, you know, crashed or couldn't take off. They came to a hover over enemy positions. You can't really hover in that environment because of the weight restrictions. Got shot up pretty big, um, came back limping, and it really set a bad tone for, for that unit. So when I came back, morale was pretty low. Um, wow. And, and the tactics we used just changed so quickly after yeah. that. So the, the new command, like the new battalion commander that came in, um, all the, the shooting that we did was on the run instead of coming to a hover. So like when I was at the schoolhouse, we would go to a hover behind some 
concealment, unmask, shoot missiles, shoot whatever, remask, and that's how you would fight the Russians. And in Afghanistan and Iraq, you've got to be on the move. You can't come to a hover because it's the, the weight and environmental restrictions are such that you've got to be on the move when you're shooting. So we had to learn a new way to do a lot of these things. Wow. Wow. wow it's like cat and mouse, man. Um, so you think that battalion commander, especially for that unit, was a, was a key role of, of changing that TTP? And, the, you know, you got to break out the books again in the diagrams like, yo, we got to change this. Yeah. No, it, it was really interesting. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day where this guy that came in, he took us on a, he took all the officers, warrant officers and commission guys in the, in the battalion on a staff ride to Normandy. It, to this day, it was probably the best professional development event I've ever been on. It was probably a week long and we went with a historian and he walked us around some of the different towns and it wasn't aviation related, obviously, but it was basically small unit leadership. When we are in this fight downrange, it's going to be teams of two. No battalion commander, probably not a company commander, unlikely even a platoon leader. It's just going to be two aircraft out there making decisions, and you got to learn how to communicate with each other. And this is how they did it kind of post-D-Day, moving from town to town. Here's like a squad that was here. Here's Sergeant so-and-so as a squad leader. He'd link up with this group, tell them what he saw, then they'd move. And they, here's how they'd approach this objective. And it was, it was just a really interesting way to break that old school mentality of how we thought and were trained before. Um, when, we, when we did our, our Graf and Veer kind of gunnery exercise, um, we, we learned how to, to shoot on the run. And this was the first time I lost somebody that I knew personally. So mm. we're, I was a pilot in command. So in the aviation world, you start out as a nobody, even after you come from the schoolhouse, it's like every place in the military, they're like, great, glad you went through training. You don't know shit. Get ready. We're going to train you now. I love it. <laughs> and then you slowly make your way through, we call it readiness level, RL level progression. So you go from like three to one. And then once you're one, you can go sit in the front seat and not do any damage. And then eventually you <laughs> want to make your way up to be a pilot in command where you're responsible for the aircraft. So everybody's gunning to be a pilot in command as soon as possible. That's like a rite of passage you want to get. So I got it. And then we go on this gunnery exercise where instead of me being in the front seat and somebody more responsible and experienced flying from behind, I am now the guy in the back seat. And I've got a more junior person who I'm responsible for in the front seat. And we're using these new tactics and you do, you do day and night shoots. So we're doing these like running gun runs and rocket shots where we'll go, we'll come in at like two or 300 feet, we'll bump up to a thousand feet and then we'll come in this pretty steep, it feels like a steep dive and then you take some rocket and gun shots and then you break. And I probably even looking at combat, this was probably the most stressful flying I did just because of where I was at experience wise in my career and the responsibility I felt for this other person in the aircraft. So, hey, Ryan, I got a quick question for you. So the makeup of this, so you're in the back of the aircraft, you're in the back seat, and you're actually flying is, what's the responsibility for that, the, the junior individual in the front? Is he actually firing the weapons, tracking? Like, what's what would his responsibilities be? Yeah, so in the Apache, you can fly, you can do everything from both seats, but it's okay. really designed, so... The guy flying is in the back and slightly elevated. It's a better center of gravity and you have better visibility. 
And the gotcha. guy in the front has some additional equipment in the cockpit that allows you to do targeting more deliberately. Okay. So you've got, okay. we call it a TAD. So it's like a little screen, some joysticks basically. And that's how you, you move the laser onto a target. It's where you pull the trigger. I mean, it's a lot like a video game in that sense. Um, okay, but, nice. But you could rotate. Like if something happened to the guy in back, the guy in front can easily fly it from there. But you typically set it up in this front back configuration. So we did the day, the day shoots, and it's a competitive environment. Like this is also kind of pre 9-11 when there's no combat environment to set people apart. The training environment, especially gunnery, is where you make your name. So there's like a Top Gun Award. You're fighting for first <laughs> base. Everything you do is recorded. They, they play it back and you, you get judged on little things that you do. So you take it real seriously. Daytime went fine. We were good. We come to nights and it was nerve wracking for me, man. Just being in the back seat, you're the one taking the rocket shots. The guy in front's typically doing the guns. It's all at night. It's all FLIR. It's with this one eye. Um, when you're landing, you're landing in these confined areas that have like 80 foot tall trees, not a lot of space to come in. So when you don't have a ton of experience, this was challenging for me. During this shoot, Two of the guys that I knew were coming in on a target. They bumped up. They were coming in at this attack angle, shooting the target. And then they got what we call target fixation, where they just didn't, they weren't aware of their speed and where they were at. And they flew straight into the ground. Um, So it was a training exercise in 05. And uh, obviously we shut down the range, called off the op, did a memorial there, but you know, it's a tight knit community. I was at Campbell later, but in Germany, all we had on our base were two attack battalions. There was nothing else there. So it's a very small community. You know, everyone knew the spouses. One, one of the spouses was pregnant at the time. So that was like my first encounter of this, this shit is real. Um, yeah. And these were guys who are more experienced than me. And I think about this a lot now that I'm in the private sector for a few years where people have a ton of confidence and I, I feel like it's not from, it's not a well-informed position, the confidence level that they have. And I think the military dispels you of that very quickly. You see other people who just get unlucky, bad, you know, wrong time, wrong place. They do one yep. thing wrong and they're more experienced than you are and they, and they bite the bullet on it basically. So that was Literally. my first encounter with that. Wow. How old were you about this time in your life, man? I was probably 25, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you now, uh, at this time, were you, were you married? Married, yep. So my wife was living yeah. there, so she knew these people. Um, mm-hmm. First time, like, spouses had to get notified to, like, letting the whole unit know what was going on. And And we had, I mean, we had a great experience there. It was like, our officer, you know, junior officer life, very few responsibilities, no kids, <laughs> running around Europe, um, warrant officers who are way more experienced and don't need some 23-year-old telling them what the hell to do, great maintainers on the aircraft, you know, the soldiers that we had. So, like, it, I had such a good experience there, but that was kind of like my last taste of it before we shipped out for our next assignment. And that was, that was super tough to take on. Um, at, at least for me at that point, that was a hard one to swallow in training. Yeah, for sure. What, what do you think it's, it's, I mean, 
somebody that's not an aviator and, and thinking about that, it's kind of crazy that that affected both those guys. You know, like you're saying, if the the pilot in the front can fly just as easily from that position as the individual from the rear, it's kind of crazy that they both would have been affected by the same yeah. issue. And in, in one of them didn't realize what was happening. That's what's that's what I mean. Myself, you know, there's that sort of du- kind of double layer of. Um, sort of overwatch in that position and you it happen man that's crazy so what happened one of the things that's really unique in the aviation community and this is air force navy like any of these folks you talk to everything's recorded so anytime there's like a catastrophic incident like this whether it's in your unit or somewhere else you tend to have a meeting where you listen to the tape and walk through what oh happened. wow and it's it's rough man you're hearing the voices of these guys that like you you know and these are their last seconds on the planet and the things that they say right before it happens. And, and this is not on, unco- like we call it target fixation. It's a, it's a situation you can get into and you constantly have to fight yourself to get out of it where the more experienced guy in the back is trying to help the guy in the front get onto the target and walk them on. Like if they're missing something or they need a correction, uh-huh. they can also see what's going on. You've got two screens in the back in your cockpit and you're watching what the front seater is looking at. So you can course correct. Like if you're out of trim or you need to adjust to give them a better sight picture, you can, but it brings your concentration into the aircraft. And they're constantly telling you like you need, as the pilot in the back, you need to be looking at what's going on around you and aware of that. And what happens in these scenarios, especially in gunnery training, you want your front seater to succeed. So you're doing everything you can to help them and you just lose track of time and space for just a moment. And it's, it all happens so fast. Wow. That's crazy. That's, that that's way, intense. Good way of describing that. Yeah. I could see how that could happen, man. You guys so are going to have to work overtime to get some funny stories out of me. So uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm being too heavy on you. No, no dude, these, are questions, these are questions that we're, uh, we're prompting you for, man. I mean, this is a realm that 99.9% of the, population other middle guys and gals don't know about you know especially so how long did you how long did you stay in uh on active duty total about seven and a half years yeah so i went from there to the 101st and we went to afghanistan with them and okay so that and that was your first combat deployment as a pilot right so how yep. was that yeah what year was that yeah, so that was 08 um so we were in rc east and coast flying out of uh, salerno Right down the road from Chapman, um, yep. you know, obviously you guys know know that location. And there was only one Apache company covering probably like six or seven provinces. So we we had a lot of work to do, which was great. Like we we could fly all over. Um, probably took us two hours to fly across our AO, and we only had two and a <laughs> half hours of gas. So like we'd have to go and and refuel just to get to some of these areas. Damn. Uh, but that. It, it was a great place to be, a great time. So I was a little bit more senior. I'd gone through what we call our uh, our captain's career course. So like I was set to be a company commander. I started out on staff, and then I took uh, I took command of our um, Apache company while we were there from a guy who is, in all likelihood, going to be a general soon. He's a brigade commander right now in the 101st. His dad was the highest ranking aviation officer in history. Um, 
guy named Dick Cody. He's like a legend. So his son, wow. also a legend, like longtime 160th guy. Um, so I took, took over from him. He went to 160th right after that. Great guy, <laughs> great company. Like he had been with these guys for years. Uh, he had been through several deployments. So I could not have taken over a better company that was more ready for this. So I, I was super fortunate there. Um, and just like you guys know that AOR, it's kind of quiet in the wintertime, but then it picks up from spring to, to fall. And that's yep. exactly what we experienced there. So different engagements over time at our base throughout the AOR. So me being a ground guy, um, you know, and calling cats and having my, you know, my fun calling in cats uh, from fixed wing to, uh, you know, to, to helos, how I know my fears on the ground, right? It, it's mind boggling to me just because the, the, the way my mind works with, with machines and machinery, like you're so reliant on some young Joes and experienced Joes that are the torque settings, the, the fuel, there's so much to make this aircraft run correctly. And like you said earlier, it takes one mistake and that bird's going down and you're fucking two hours away from your base. One bird. Did you fly one bird or did were, were, were you, in, in you always go in pairs? You would never go out okay. with just one. But still, you know, an aircraft going down like that freaks me the fuck out. <laughs> Excuse my language, but like, you know, like especially with the Taliban and especially in the mountains, man, like yeah. it's, it's an equal playing field. And how did you overcome that fear from training to doing the mission and, and knowing below you are some pretty highly trained dudes that have fought 14 empires? That's true, man. So the month before we got into country, the unit we replaced had two aircraft fly straight into a mountain. Um, the, the guys lived, surprisingly. But Shut the up, combination really? of of terrain like you know 14,000 foot tall mountains and weather are really dangerous for aircraft now we could fly out of small arms range thankfully because by the time 08 like there's no air defense capability that we had to be worried about so we could get up at altitude but you're always worried about the environmental conditions that's like the big fear so coming into land at a farp like at a small outpost was nerve wracking. Like just getting in and landing, refueling and getting out is tough with the weight constraints and like you need, you need your ammo, but you also need your, your fly time. So you're super heavy getting out. So coming in and coming out was, was pretty nerve wracking. Once you're in flight, um, for the most part, you're, f you're fairly good until you get in a gunfight and then you start pulling in a lot of power for different moves. And you got to be really careful because you're probably right at your max power margin, given your weight and everything. So you pull in a little bit too much and you can basically render an engine inoperable. And you definitely don't want to do that. So you're constantly playing with these little measurements in the aircraft um, to be safe there. Wow. So quick, quick question after having a few hours behind the stick of a, of a Robinson, man. I, I, could, I know just enough to ask a question and that's all I know. <laughs> is the auto rotation of these things? Is there a glide? What's the glide? Is there a glide ratio? Or are you falling, man? 
<laughs> I mean, you practice it all the time. Yeah. For people who don't know what an auto is, it's a frightening experience where basically you cut your engine and then the airflow that's coming up through the main rotor blade above keeps it spinning. So you got to, you just got to move forward and stabilize. And probably, I can't remember what it was, at, at like 75 feet, as you're plummeting out of the sky with no engine, you pull in the collective which changes the pitch in the main rotor blade just enough so that you get a little bit of a cushion before you hit the ground. And that's your big fear is having an auto happen over there. Now we had two engines, so we had a little bit of an, op, you know, a little bit of a, an advantage in case one went out, but you're constantly practicing those. And I've definitely interviewed guys who have real autos in combat. And that is no joke trying to land one of those. Yeah, I, I was always yeah. worried about that. I don't know quite. I don't know if I got your question there, Jason. In the you end, did, man. yeah, you did. I, I in my head, I was like, "There's no way this thing's gonna. It's gonna fall." Because I mean, no, I just, the way you describe, and you know, obviously, I don't know what I'm talking about, but it's just I know it's a quite different than an R32 or an you, R33. You can land it. You can land it. Yeah. Wow. So, trip, what, so you're in, you're in Afghanistan and you're running all these missions, and uh, how were you guys interacting with? Did you have? Um, Units that you were just like, hey, we're working with these guys all the time. Did you ever have any uh, special operations units that you guys interacted with on a, a regular basis? You know, where you'd be in on the on the briefs or whatever the case may be, and and so you got to know some of these guys. Yeah, so we worked really closely with Third Special Forces Group. They just happened to be co-located with us, the White Soft side of it, and you know they had they had commandos. Um, so we do a lot of deliberate hits with them and it was great. Like I have nothing but respect for those guys. They really yep. brought us in smart of them. Like we're the only resource in town that can fly them around. So like they made <laughs> sure that we were loving up on them and we were like, they were great. They bring us into their op center. Um, we do joint briefs, rock drills, all of that stuff. So we did some great ops with them. I did sit in the kind of the first time I was exposed to the Intel side of the world and, and people with no name tags or anything. I got dropped into a fusion cell meeting a few times. So we'd go in and I'm like the only guy in a uniform without a beard. They're going around the room and people are talking about what they're doing. And I remember, man, like I remember these guys, they get, we, we have this like 20 minute meeting. Everybody's talking about what they're doing. And then at the end, a guy's like, oh, I got an alibi. Nobody kills so-and-so before Tuesday because we're going after him. And I just remember thinking, like, that's weird as hell to say. Like, we don't say that in the aviation side. Um, and obviously, years later, when I'm at the agency, it's a very different story. And, the, like, that's all these folks in the room and different orgs. But I did think that was pretty cool, like, just getting from a conventional standpoint, getting to see, like, what you guys did downrange was pretty cool to see with my own two eyes. Yeah, man. Well, we couldn't have done our jobs without you and vice versa, man. Like, it's... Yeah. real smart they brought you in and i wish i had more shoulder time and you know uh just elbow time with our pilots and cast pods but obviously they live so far away especially from farad hellman but uh we had yeah, a couple man. funny moments with them like one of the, one of their team houses they had the prosthetic leg of some guy up on the wall and you know you're just sitting under it and ask them about it they'll have they'll have a drink out of it every now and then um we we dropped we dropped a, an ODA team off at the wrong LZ once. Like they had to hump it in 
And I'm sure both of you guys have been in this spot where you're like, for real, yeah. man, you brought this the wrong fucking LZ. I, so, I think that's uh, probably the from aviation side of things. I think that's probably one of the most common things that you common. hear. I, I think that's literally happened to everybody. When you get on the ground, you're like, hey, we're fucking four miles away from where we're supposed to be. Like, what the hell? Yeah. And, and yeah, in this case, it was one of the cockiest <laughs> pilots possible. So it could not have happened to a better guy. <laughs> the best guy. Yeah, yeah. And in the debrief afterwards, like the ODA team leader was like, hey, man, who dropped us in this LZ? And, you know, and the guy's got to raise his hand. We're all like, <laughs> deserved. So Ryan, did it bring him down a couple? Was he a little oh, bit yeah, more humble after that? I, I feel like those kinds of things do help out, and, and he, he was noticeably different after that. Yeah, it's probably wow. a very good experience for him, man. It was, yeah, man. yeah, he, yeah. He, ego he check, killer, and we all deal with our own ego at some point. Like, fuck, I was totally wrong on that. So, is there any highlights from you know engagements? Is there any something? crazy and just like holy shit i can't believe i was a part of that and made it back from that moment yeah man our um our base got attacked one time and so i was on our qrf we'd always have two aircraft on qrf (laughs) um typically we'd launch and fly at least like 30 minutes maybe an hour to get to some contact that's going on um this time though our base got hit so vbied like um just mortars coming in rockets, whatever they'd fire and then enemy fire coming over the wire. So like we had a pretty big, um, fence line, but you could shoot through it. And obviously as aviators, we're not used to like seeing rounds coming in at us like this. So as typical <laughs> aviators, when this thing kicks off, we're eating. So we're at the chow hall stuffing our face with like midnight chow. Cause we had just pre-flighted and everything. And we got our, our radios. We're the only ones there and we're eating the omelets or whatever the hell else they're feeding us. And we get this call and we're not the fittest people as aviators. So like <laughs> we run to our, our gator, you know, like our little, uh, yep. Yep. John Deere. Our, our gator cruise on out to, to the flight line. And, and when we ran out to the aircraft, you know, we were, we had rounds coming in and this, it wasn't as crazy for us as pilots because we hop in the cockpit and we got some ballistic protection. But our crew chiefs, actually, I hadn't mentioned this, and people who aren't in the aviation community don't really see this. If you're a crew chief on a Blackhawk, you're flying out and you're like shooting from the side of it. You are part of the air crew. In an Apache, it's just two pilots. So these maintainers who are part of our unit never get to go out and do this stuff. And they are only Apache maintainers. They don't go and sometimes work on Blackhawks. So they're not under fire in this way. And they they launch us. They go out with us. They connect to the aircraft through, um, you know, like through a cable. And they get everything ready to get us out. And they check all of our armament and everything. And these guys were out there like up on our, our wing. Basically, we got these uh, short wings. And they're checking with us while rounds are coming in. And to me, that meant a ton that our guys were out there with us. Like they, they probably didn't have to be. But they definitely wanted to launch us. Not only like was it an important op, but it was our base getting attacked. So maybe wow. more incentive to do that. And we later put them in. I, I put them in for some awards in this case because you guys know how it is. Like if you're on a FOB, higher up people end up getting awards for something that happens like around that lands on the other side of the base. They'll get an award. These dudes deserved yeah. it and got denied. And, and to this day, it really pisses me off. They got uh, denied? 
Yeah. And Jesus. Why am I not surprised? You sure it's not the Marine Corps? And our talk got something for that night who never walked out of the talk. So it, it like to this day grates on me. And you guys know exactly this feeling and how it is. Dude, but, you just boiled my fucking blood, bro. Yeah. That pisses That's me off. Like, yeah, it's ridiculous. In harm's way, as much as they were ever going to put themselves in harm's way, they did so we could take off. And, and you always have in an Apache some kind of problem on takeoff. There's always like, it's, you know, it's technology from the 80s. So it feels sophisticated, but there's a lot of machines and they're massive machines and something inevitably doesn't work. So they troubleshoot <laughs> take off. And when we took off, like we were in, immediately in the fight. And it, because, you know, it's, it's our perimeter, which is unusual. Usually we take off for flying for 10 minutes at least, getting briefed on what's going on. We get situational awareness, checking out the maps. We're, de- we're sending e- each other, like the other aircraft stuff, across our comms platform, like on our digital maps. So we is have a lot texting of each other. Yeah, basically it is. It's a text. <laughs> it's like the oldest school text you can imagine. Um, <laughs> and here, like we're immediately in the fight. Radios are blowing up. So the unit that's tasked with force protection at our FOB was an artillery unit. So they're not really <laughs> used to, as you guys can imagine, like manning a fighting post with their M4 and, ha- and moving outside the wire. So they're new to this. They're doing it. So we got that, their talk talking to us, our aviation talk, which usually can't talk to us because we get out of range. Um, neither of them are used to this scenario. So we got those are blowing up. We got m- m- kind of maneuver elements outside the wire trying to, to get after it, artillery units. And then Chapman, all the dudes at Chapman who are like, oh, there's a fight in town. All these people who we can't communicate with are now rolling into town. So just trying to determine through thermal imaging on the ground who is who is not was super yep. confusing. Damn. So typically what we would do, you can text each other these like map overlays. So we would we would shoot kind of like a if you would imagine two rectangles side by side. And we'd say, we'd drop, we'd drop one on our system and then we'd text it over to the other aircraft and say, hey, you stay in, <laughs> in this rectangle, I'll stay in the other one. And then we don't have to worry about altitude. So we can kind of be de-conflicted um, horizontally and then focus on what's below us. So we start doing that. In my aircraft is the most senior pilot in our unit, our senior instructor pilot. The closest thing to God is in my aircraft evaluating everything I do. So <laughs> for for no good reason, we decided in this flight, he should sit in the front, I should sit in the back, which should never be the case. I should always be in the front, but I need to get hours in the back seat. He was able to evaluate. So we're, we should never be in this situation, but we are. And of course, something happens. So we're up, we're in our, our zones. We're trying to figure out what's going on get situational awareness. And we finally do, we get eyes on the enemy. And we line up to take a gunshot on him. So I move. I'm coordinating with my wingman who's separated from me. We get lined up for the shot. This guy who has flown his whole life, he's probably 44 at the time. So to me, he feels ancient. And he's flown forever. He's just so old. I know. Ancient guy who's my age now. Um, But has probably 5,000 flight hours. I've got about 800 is completely focused on this little screen in front of him and not all of this mayhem going on around him. That's my job. So we come in, he has eyes on the target. I got him lined up and he, he does the 
typical call to me is like, Hey, am I clear? I got to clear him. And I'm like, I just immediately instinctively say you're clear. He gets ready to pull the trigger. And as soon as he does that, our wingman flies in front of us. So takes up the screen that you can see and and it's, it's like a, a very hot engine. So on thermal imaging, it's a very bright spot that just flies across us. So it's not, I'm not saying it's like five feet in front of us. It was probably 75 meters in front of us, but so fills your screen because you are zoomed in on people um, who are you know 2,000 meters away from you. So he doesn't pull the trigger. I start climbing and just slowly, I, I, I get us into a slow climb and I'm like, holy shit, I almost blew our wingman out of the sky. And it's just the chaos of things going, going on. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's really hard. I, I don't know what the equivalent is for y- for y'all on the ground. Like this guy in the cockpit, he was like a first sergeant. Like this guy knows everything. He evaluates everyone. I'm like, I just fucked up in front of this guy. And I almost killed these guys who were in my unit and my responsibility. So we you were guys climbing. were you guys had deconflicted. Did your did your whatever your secondary aircraft, did he leave leave his box? No, this this I mean we can't, we don't have enough detail there, but this was on me. Like I should have been watching where is he at throughout the whole process, and I just uh-huh. I did not. I got fixated on what was going on on the screen. Like, yeah, I'm not saying yeah. it's super common, but I wasn't as experienced as a lot of guys, so that one was on me, and he knew it. And to his credit, as we were climbing out, um, he was like, "Hey, are you good, sir? You you ready to go do? He's CW four, and he knew it was in my head and took me probably like three or four seconds that felt like an eternity and i was like i'm ready to get back in this thing and we did and to his credit like we ended up putting rounds on targets after that like getting right back into it and he very easily could have been like hey let's go land you fuck this up um and it really would have messed with me as a pilot from then on and he didn't and every pilot has their story of something that has gone wrong and this just happened to be this guy in the cockpit who i admired a ton so the weight was even more substantial for that. Yeah. Wow. What were your What were your targets, Ryan? Were they foot mobile? Were they technical? Yeah, these guys, were guys on the ground um, taking cover, and you know, like they had broken contact and were moving, basically retreating, and trying to move from like a wadi to a uh, compound wall, like a collot wall, to get behind that. So we engaged them um, in that area. And we, we flew for, I don't know, maybe three or four hours. It was chaotic. We landed. We handed off to Kiowas. This thing went well into the daytime. Um, wow. These guys were dug in. Yeah. Wow. I mean, they, they were just taking advantage and trying to, like, roll the fight on us again after we, after there was a lull. But that guy, this guy, JT, he's the second guy I ever interviewed on my podcast. And it was a super <laughs> important one for me because we talked through that that engagement. And then one, like the closest I ever came to death, he was in the sister aircraft with me. And it was probably four months later. And again, like if he hadn't handled that first situation the way he did, I probably wouldn't have been in that cockpit again later. So it was really an important moment for me. Thanks for listening and check back next week for part two with Ryan Fugit and the guys from Savage Actual. This has been Savage Actual. Jason and Patrick are two former special operations guys who interview interesting guests. 
who talk about video games, airsoft, and military subjects. <laughs> Basically, they drink a lot of beer, talk about shooter games, and have fun. What's not to love? We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure to like, rate, and review. And the fellas will be back soon. But in the meantime, find them on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Savage Actual. Y'all be cool. And we'll see you next time.